Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and Miguel Delaney of the Sunday Independent. Manchester United are bang in trouble. Three defeats in a week and an unbalanced team chosen on ego and fading reputation. Is this time for Jose to admit his mistakes, John? Well, I certainly think he's been trying to pass the buck to absolutely everybody else but himself. I mean, if it's not Luke Shaw, it's about players not being able to to take responsibility and maybe even feeling the pressure of not being able to handle that pressure of playing for Manchester United. And I do think Mourinho, somewhere in there, I I think that we're we're seeing so so many familiar traits from last season, I think, when he had that meltdown at Chelsea when I do think that kind of we found out that, that blaming players and shifting the blame onto players creates one thing, and that's generally a dressing room revolt. And I think this time he's got to be very careful of that. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think sometimes I think kind of working out players and man-managing the players in public has worked for Mourinho in the past. I mean, look at Joe Cole, and I think he's sort of kind of first in, in instance at Chelsea, really. But... I think Mourinho this time has got a lot of egos to manage, a bigger situation than maybe he thought. Um, Certainly a lot of square pegs into round holes that's not working in midfield, particularly at the moment. He's got to find that balance, which he clearly hasn't found yet. But I do think Mourinho, I think, can only regain some of the respect from that dressing room by actually saying, look, I've made mistakes as well and it's time for me to front those up. Mm, And the comparisons, Miguel, with Pep Guardiola, will be inevitable yeah. and damning. Yeah, I mean, it's only two league defeats, but I think there are a few kind of big concerns for United. I mean, the, the City game kind of summed it up in something. I mean, Guardiola's attacking football is famously more complex to coach, more difficult to enact, and yet City were so far ahead of United in terms of what what they did and how they went about their job. And I think the kind of Claudio Bravo situation almost, it, it bailed out Mourinho a little bit, because I think had he not suffered that kind of uh, blow to his confidence and the way it affected the rest of the game that could genuinely have been humiliating for United it could, it could have been a 4-0 um, but basically City kind of just lost their, their impetus a little bit but I mean whereas they obviously immediately went they've escalated again superb again on Saturday United you see the same issues on Sunday, even the way they ended the game There's, and it was like Chelsea uh, last year I remember hearing from someone close to the Chelsea camp that uh, Mourinho actually doesn't do too much attacking coaching because he usually generally gets in kind of gets in quality players and kind of expects to trust them. But the problem, I suppose, then is when you when you do need a design, they're found one thing, and that could be seen in in the City game and again against Watford, where they're basically just pumping balls. There was just there was no shape to what they were doing, and then they were caught out with. I mean, between the City game and then the United and then the Watford game yesterday as well. I mean, two very similar goals, particularly yesterday. Mm. Sixteen defeats in his last thirty-four games. When does that Chelsea situation? 
proved to be more than the blip? I think it already is, because I do think that having had three defeats in a row, three defeats in eight days, we're immediately looking back at what happened yeah. with, with Chelsea. And, and that is the hangover. And that is the kind of the elephant in the room, really. And we were immediately questioning and sort of saying, was that a Chelsea kind of meltdown or is a Mourinho meltdown? Has the magic faded already and has it gone? And we're, we're left wondering, actually, you know, uh, the sort of the kind of the, the, the magic and the, you know, kind of facade being stripped away from the players. But also, have Manchester United hired it's kind of the special one without his special powers anymore? I think it's as simple as that. It was really interesting. I was at... I was at Chelsea-Liverpool Friday night and Antonio Conte was raising the point. Actually, some of the players are still suffering from, from the kind of the hangover from last season. Well, to my mind, at the moment, I think that the way that Mourinho is kind of trying to publicly absolve blame from himself, um, I think that you can see very clearly that Mourinho hasn't recovered from last season. I, for one, thought he, thought he had and thought he would. And I thought he'd take on Man United and push them on to another level particularly when you look at the quality and level of signings that he's done, I, I thought that they'd go and win the league. But I actually think it was a bigger repair job than, than I thought, actually, and probably he did. Mm. And in, ter in terms of whether it's a blip as well, I mean, the big thing is that I mean, the last time we were here, we were talking after they beat Bournemouth, that Mourinho and Ibrahimovic had come in with kind of shoulders back and kind of restored that arrogance to United. But that's immediately eroded. So we've gone from that in the space of a week, we've gone from that to kind of a new kind of confidence with the club again to know this, where suddenly, or, or particularly for me, I mean, for Mourinho, this must be, um, well, not quite a new situation given last season, but to, to immediately have all this doubt about him again, he's never experienced it in his career, but now it's carried on. I mean, he thought he was kind of back to normal with those first three wins, but now already we have this kind of, all the old Chelsea issues returning, um, and a lot of questions to answer again. Managers, big managers, make big decisions. Now, Pep's done that at City, with, with mm. Joe Hart, for instance. There's no bigger decision than working out the future of Wayne Rooney. He's not untouchable anymore, is he? He shouldn't be. Um, I mean, we, we, we're talking off-air. I think um, he, he, I mean, his performance this season was kind of mixed. I think against Watford, he, he was very poor. But I think the biggest issue with Rooney is basically that it's, it's the, the three can't, don't seem to be able to work together because they all end up occupying the same space. I mean, Pogba at his best, he can't seem to play this defensive midfield role that Mourinho, Mourinho has him in, or even as, kind of, as a six. He's best when he's kind of allowed to roam, allowed to run, allowed to almost be a, a Lampard, you know, as Mourinho had between 04 and 07. But to do that, that means he can't have a 10 in between Pogba and Ibrahimovic, and a 10 there is Rooney. I mean, and you, you could see it a few games this season. I mean, even, I think we set up even for that first game against Bournemouth as well, that there were so many times that Ibrahimovic dropped back, expecting Rooney to bomb on. And they just end up being in the same space. And then behind them, Pogba has to kind of, you know, roam to the left to try try and find space himself. So it just it, it just you know furthers this perception that the team, this eleven, doesn't really work. And there's one major issue. You've got some reliance on Fellaini, physicality. You know, unlike there was a really interesting start I thought from the weekend that Manchester United have run the least out of all twenty Premier League clubs. They don't press, unlike most of the other big teams. Is there something really fundamental wrong with, the, with, with that team? I don't think... The biggest thing for me is I don't think he's got the balance right in midfield. And, and has he really got the players to kind of change that so dramatically? I actually think Fellaini does a, does a really good job, actually, in difficult circumstances for Manchester United because he does disrupt it and he does sort of have a discipline and he is an annoyance, if you, if you like. And I think every team kind of needs one. But I do think that... I. I 
I wondered from the first game at Bournemouth, which I was at, you know, I thought the Fellaini Herrera access worked, worked really well. Hmm. I'm not suggesting you could probably drop Pogba. You just can't. Yeah, can you? Yeah. you just can't. You cannot sign Pogba, this player. They've made Pogba the future of the club now. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to basically, you know, build that team around. You know, that's what happens when you sign a player for £89 million. But what I'm trying to say is that the balance of that team is just not right. And You've if you, always if, protected Rooney, haven't you? Yeah, I'm a big him. fan of his. I really am. But, look, I, I do think there's no getting away from it. He was particularly poor at Watford. But I do, do I think that he's been the worst player on the pitch in, in the other game? No. I do think he's been made something of a scapegoat but, but, in, in a way. But I do think that you've got, you've got to make that harsh decision. You either play him in his correct position or, or you don't. Because yeah. basically you cannot accommodate him as some sort of passenger, which it seems to me that they're doing at the moment. I'm not fi- I, I don't feel that it's necessarily all Rooney's fault. But if you play him out of position or if you play him in a system that's not going to work for him and not work, therefore, for the system, it's a complete and utter waste of time. Mkhitaryan, for me, you know, is, is a really good option when fit and when firing again. But where does he come in on, you know, kind of... I, I just think that at the moment Rooney... I think the only position you could, should, should play him, for me, is a number 10. I know it, actually he likes playing off the left, and so maybe that could be an option. But at the moment, I just don't think that you're getting the best out of Rooney and you're playing Rooney at the expense of, of the you know, fluidity of the team. If we, if we accept, Migs, that basically Schweinsteiger's been sent away to do the dishes, you've got Schneiderlin, you've got Carrick, they've not been anywhere near it. Now, surely... People with that quality have got to be included in the mix, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, I would have thought that Schneider was almost kind of a natural fit for maybe alongside Fellaini behind Pogba for a three, but Mourinho doesn't seem to fancy him. Um, you, you wonder what he's been like in training. Um, but in relation to that fluidity, which I think you know that, that sort of midfield would allow, I think one of the issues with Rooney in that sense is that if you look at all Mourinho's best teams, they're all built in kind of that breakneck pace, you know, they're lightning on the counter-attack. Where I think Rooney kind of, just the way he plays, naturally slows that down. It's not like... It's not like he can immediately kind of turn and play one of those kind of through balls in the way Snyder did for Mourinho's Inter. So as you're saying, I mean, if you took out Rooney and kind of re- reassemble that mid- midfield, I think we-, we would see that. But again, I suppose, as you say, if, if Mourinho at the moment doesn't fancy Schneider and Carrick, you'd even wonder what the configuration is. Mean, like, it's possible he needs, to, he needs to go into the market again in January for that sort of player. Although Fellaini, Herrera and Pogba could possibly work. Mm-hmm. What about Rashford, John? Is he undroppable now? Well, I just think he makes such a difference, doesn't he? I still think that Rashford is at a stage of his career then he's got, going to have to accept that he can't start every game. But I think that the wonderful thing about him is that when you bring him on, then he makes an even bigger impact against tired legs. But I, I, I just watched him in times yesterday during the game and he was fantastic. The ball at his feet, he moves with such speed and such control. He's an absolute joy to watch, he really is. Such maturity about his movement, isn't it? Absolutely. He, just, he, he's, he really has come from comparative nowhere in the, in the last year or so. A player, I think, was being dug out at sort of kind of youth level for not being prolific enough and not scoring enough goals. And, and he's just taken this incredible leap. And he is the future of Manchester United, as I see it. I mean, I just think that at the moment, United have got to understand where, where best to play him. Can you accommodate Rashford and Martial in the team, in the same team? I'm not sure. Sometimes, you know, I, I don't know, you kind of balance it up. But I think United have got lots of questions. But at the forefront of my mind is that you, you've got to accommodate Pogba. You've got to make a system that's going to work. But also, you've absolutely got to make Rashford, moving forward, 
a hub of that team. Mm. He's, he's such a talent. So another young talent, Kalechi Iannaccio, he's been involved in 24 goals in that very short career. Average of, I think it's one every 57 minutes. Why not? Why no hype about him? Yeah, it's been oddly understated, hasn't it? And, um, I think that will change. I mean, I suppose it's almost, I mean, even before the derby, there was such a kind of big uh, controversy about Aguero and how much City would miss him. But it's kind of testament to Inacho and how how easily he's fit into that team that they haven't missed him at all in two games. That he's going to just the team has just carried on. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it should change. But I suppose to a degree, it, it's it sums up to kind of another difference between the two Manchester managers as well. And that, I mean, it's been such an old team, but we're seeing it kind of borne out that uh, we're seeing proper proof of it that Guardiola is much more willing to throw young players in than, than, than Mourinho. I mean, Mourinho was so kind of reticent about putting in Rashford until Rashford essentially made himself, you know, <laughs> undroppable. Mm. Whereas um, Guardiola had absolutely no, no hesitation about, about putting Inacio in from the start. And he's brought in a few other players, you know, the goalkeeper, Angus mm. Gunn's gone in, three or four other players have been brought up from the academy. That proves to me that there's a big picture going on well, here. Yeah, he's got, I think, I remember doing the stats before, he's got an average of bringing through something like three academy products per season in his career, Guardiola, which is, I think, the highest in Europe other than Van Gaal, actually. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I mean again, he's, he's kind of like the, the final piece of the City project in so many ways, but I suppose they'll want the, kind of, the, the final thrust as well to actually win those big trophies. Uh, which he sort of got a little bit irritated about at the weekend. Yeah, yeah. The, the <laughs> sigh after that question when he was asked, "Are you going to make? Are you going to do the quadruple?" was just perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, after a performance like that, it was a fair question, I suppose. But <laughs> well, are you going to win a lot? Talk, talk about hype. Now, it's one of your favourite fixtures, John, on on Saturday. Arsenal v Chelsea. Arsene Wenger's always the centrepiece of that fixture, especially when Mourinho was at Chelsea. What's his mood like coming into it? I think it would be buoyed actually by, by a, a really good turnaround, sort of kind of, you know, three straight wins, isn't it? And kind of, you know, a real lift, I think, in the mood. I still wonder about kind of where the team is at and whether he's found the right kind of combinations and, and sort of setup of it. But I, I, I think that down the years, he's sort of almost flirted with, with dominating Chelsea. And, you know, they have enjoyed a couple of wins, haven't they, sort of in, in, in recent times. But. I do think that in recent seasons, it's been completely dominated by, by the Mourinho v Wenger um, ugly spat. And I think he will enjoy the fact that actually mm. it's a new you know, figure uh, in the opposite dugout. Yeah. Um, and I think to that end, it will give, give him some hope. And, and I, I guess it will give him some relief because I think there's one thing that he absolutely hates in the build-up to these games. He's asking, sort of answering questions and being asked questions about Jose Mourinho and that spat and that head-to-head. -head. But I do think it, it is an acid test for Arsenal because I do think they've come through a, a difficult start. And I think we'll only know, particularly where Arsenal are and also Chelsea, after the 90 minutes are up on this game. Because mm. it changes so quickly in football, mm -hmm. isn't it? You know, could Arsenal be prey to predators? You know, we're hearing a lot about Bellerin and Barcelona. Arsenal have got to keep this momentum yeah. going, almost to keep their players, haven't they? Yeah, to an extent. Um, actually, from the Chelsea perspective as well, it is refreshing even from our point of view to not write about the Mourinho-Wenger dynamic and this, like, just to change the team. But, I mean, in relation to that, in terms of momentum, um, one thing you have to give credit, Wenger credit for, I and mean, we talked here about a few weeks ago after they, after they lost to Liverpool in the open day, you know, it, it, it's actually hard to remember now, 
which I have to recall how difficult it was at that point for, because it's been such a change. And this probably goes to why they so consistently qualify for the Champions League. Wenger is good. Even if he can't make a final push with his teams, he is very good at kind of developing this winning rhythm that we've seen. I mean, because they haven't really been brilliant in the last three games. It's a, the configuration team may not be right. The midfield hasn't always worked. I thought they were pretty poor against Paris Saint-Germain. But again, came away with a result. And, the, and these three wins in a row, they're kind of... They've developed this this habit of kind of doing enough in these sort of fixtures, mm. and yeah, it, it's going to be interesting, especially after after Friday night at Stamford Bridge, the dynamic of this game. Yeah, with Arsenal, you know, there is this um, hub of Coquelin, um, and uh, he has basically almost he's pushing Zaka out of the side. Why mm. is that? I think it's because he's looking for partnerships. And I think he thinks then that Cochrane and Cazorla is mm. the way forward. I think if you look at over time, I think he just thinks Cazorla makes Arsenal tick. And I think mm. he thinks that Cazorla has to be in there. And so what partnership works with Cazorla? And I think that so much of last season's kind of inconsistencies, if you like, and the reason why they sort of fell short in the title race was the absence, you know, sort of for, for such a long period of time of Cazorla. Um, and I, I just think that, you know, he's got to find the right sort of balance in there. I mean, Xhaka for me is much more of a box-to-box player than sort of mm. anchorman. Mm. And I wonder, therefore, is that the right setup with with Cazorla? Um, so, therefore, you know, are you going to see sort of Xhaka bombing forward? And Cazorla is obviously in that four-two-three-one system. You know, you can't have two that that sort of the first thing since is to get forward really. Mm. And I think Jacker is that sort of player. And Coquelin, I think, has risen to the challenge. I mm. think he's he's done extremely well. But it is bizarre that Arsenal spend, you know, I think thirty-four million pounds basically. They say that, that that's what it was on Jacker, and he, he's yet to start on a regular basis. I mean, we we all assumed you know he'd been rested last Saturday for the PSG game in midweek. Well, he hadn't been. He didn't start. And yet when he came on the pitch. I thought he put a real stranglehold on the game and it gave them much more physical power and strength in the midfield. And that's when Arsenal almost turned the screw in Paris. You see him come on at Hull and he scores this spectacular goal, isn't it? I don't think his goal scoring is going to be his greatest strength, but he does like to drive forward. And I think it's almost finding that balance of that team. And I think Sanchez is a big issue with that because basically he's playing him through the middle rather than on the left. And I think for Arsenal, they've got to find a balance. There's still a lot of talk about Sanchez. Mm. He was linked with Manchester City at mm. the weekend. There's been persistent talk about Juventus. Where, where do you see it? I think that there's a lot of wrangling to be done over that contract. And I think that he's got he's into the final two years. I think he wants a contract with a buyout clause. I also think he wants something in excess of £200,000 a week. I think Arsenal was a situation whereby I think they might have panicked a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, and sold him last summer. But I do think they'll kind of try and ride it out and hope that he signs. And, you know, if he asks for a buyout, then he asks for a buyout. I think they're a lot more confident that Urza will sign a contract before Sanchez. I wouldn't put it past Sanchez, but I do think that the big thing for Sanchez is knowing that he's got a buyout clause, knowing that he's going to win trophies. I think that's a big thing. Um, and, you know, if they can sort of kind of almost guarantee that as much as anyone can, then I think he'll stay and sign. 
but I do I think that he's absolutely certain he'll sign, not by any means. Well, I remember after one of the images last season was uh, after they drew two all at Hoyer Lane and how irritated Alexis Sanchez was after like, they dropped points because it was, it was so big in the title race. And he does, he does seem to get cattier than anyone any time Arsenal don't win games. He, like, I think I suppose he's at that stage of his career now. He's had a bit of success again with Chile with two, two Cup Americas in a row where he kind of went right. He, he's going to be, what, 30 in what, two, three years' time and kind of want, wants to fulfil his talent and actually make sure he has the medals to show for, show for it. Mm. With Chelsea, where do you think they're at at the moment? You know, Conte, you were both at the game on, on Friday yeah. night. Conte read the riot act, apparently, in the dressing room afterwards, which is to be expected mm. given his temperament. You know, some talk about him not being happy with the standard of signings. Where are we with Chelsea at the moment? I think probably undeniably taking a bit of a step back. Maybe the kind of all those late goals and the three games in between yeah, painted a slightly false picture. Um, because, they, they did, I mean, even those games, they look like a work in progress. But one that had come... I mean, the difference... I know it was, it was Burnley, who were probably one of the weaker teams in the league this season. But the difference between, say, the West Ham game and the opening weekend of the season, the Burnley game, and I was at both. Um, the West Ham game, what they were trying to do didn't really work. In the Burnley game, it was like this was this was Conte's Italy. They were just kind of they were flying, you know. You could even see like at at their best, Conte teams, they kind of they they overwhelm you with kind of these you know this buzzing of movement around the box. But it's all about controlling. You, I mean, you can see with Conte, like the, the team seems to be kind of running all over the place when you're watching the pitch. But then you can see him on the sideline. He's giving calls, and every time he gives a call, there's kind of you know a very angled ball that goes across. So it's all this kind of it's coordinated chaos almost. Um, whereas on on Friday it was just chaos really. I mean they were completely overwhelmed by Liverpool. Do you always think Liverpool were two 0 up before Chelsea even had a shot on target? Mm. What about the decline of Gary Cahill? That seemed pretty marked on Friday night. Yeah, it does really. I think Chelsea's you know, defence is a, is, a, is a massive concern. I think if you look at it, Conte has got to rebuild. Uh, I think you know Vanovic was was really poor. I think, and I do think that Cahill probably feels the pressure. And I think he's looking like a man who's playing under pressure because he knows that Luis has been brought in for big money. I think John Terry, when fit, always plays. And so where does that leave, you know, Gary Cahill? Particularly, I think you've also got Zuma coming back. And I think Cahill is playing like a, a player at the moment who probably thinks maybe my first team, you know, sort of kind of reign is coming to an end. Because that's got big, you know, knock-on effects. Because if you look at it, he's going to start for England while he's in the Chelsea team. As soon as he loses his Chelsea place, in my view, then he loses his England place. And I think he's under you know, big threat for all club and country at the moment. And he looks like it. What about Liverpool, uh, Miguel? Dare to dream? Um, well, it's, it's amazing, actually. With Liverpool, almost, the proof isn't to win these games. It's to go and you know, win, the, win against the Burnleys, against Hull, against all, you know, the sides that have kind of traditionally... Get, I mean, this actually, it's an issue that precedes Klopp's time. I remember... In in '97, say when Liverpool were in a title race, you know they, they they go and beat Arsenal one week, then lose to Coventry the next, and here we are 20 years on. Even like under Klopp, it's almost that's become an even greater issue because it goes back to last season. You know they have these incredible results in Europe, but then drop points at the weekend in games that they should be winning. And uh, I suppose I mean this season's only five games old, but we've already we've seen it again. So it's you know it's it's about now developing that rhythm to go with these kind of massive performances, and I do wonder with with Klopp's approach sometimes whether it's actually better suited to playing against the big teams because he has something to react to and kind of he kind of can work in their flaws rather than kind of taking the game to a team that may be more willing to frustrate them. But then at the same time, on Friday, what was particularly impressive and what could be promising was the fact that they actually 
completely overwhelmed Chelsea. They just imposed their game on Chelsea. It wasn't a case of kind of working out, working their way through what Chelsea did. They just, you know, I mean, Chelsea couldn't get out of their half for, for, for so long in the first half. Mm. Real emotional intensity about that team. And mm. also, what struck me in the aftermath was you know, Klopp going around the pitch and bear-hugging every player. And they seem to be loving it. Look, we love him because it's, mm. you know, he gives great quote, doesn't he? But he is central to the whole Liverpool story, Klopp, now. Can they maintain that emotional intensity? Because it'll be difficult over the course of a season. I personally think that Liverpool will finish in the top four. Do I think they can win the title? Well, I think they're an outside shot, but obviously everyone, I think, is dependent on the moment on Man City blowing up. <laughs> but I just feel that, that without the, the added distraction of, of, of the Champions League or the Europa League, um, then I do think it gives Liverpool a great edge. Uh, I think they've bought well. I think Mane has given them pace and power. Um, I do think it's that intensity that, 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 is, that will be the test as to where they can keep those physical levels yeah. up for the course of the season. From what I hear, he works them so hard in training. I think that will be the other test. And, you know, it was really interesting, wasn't it? He took over last, um, you know, last October. Um, and by kind of Christmas time, he was kind of counting the body count, really. Because it was just, the, the, the players were falling like flies and kind of, they didn't have that base of fitness training. And therefore, they were getting pulls and strains. This time, he's got to have done the really strong pre-season hopefully giving them that base layer of fitness but I think that will be their, the, the test I think the, the one thing they've got in their favour is no European football their biggest enemy is actually probably arguably themselves and you could almost say the same a bit about Tottenham in terms of Pochettino drives them really hard on the training ground loads of tour days it was quite worrying yesterday I know you were there John weren't you that uh, you've got Harry Kane which looks quite a bad ankle injury, Eric Dyer's off. Have they got a strong enough qu uh, squad to cope? It's strange with Tottenham. I mean, they've actually got a very wide squad, or a very deep squad, <coughs> but whether you're going to trust them to do the same role as kind of the core, maybe 14 players? Because, I mean, we've, we've already seen yesterday, Dembele makes such a massive difference to our team. I mean, the jump in the side from when he's in it and when he's not in it is, is, is incredible. Just They look so much more controlled, and it gives all that... Uh, power and pace they play with just so much more just poise um, I, mean, I, I, I think they lack a bit of uh, a bit of depth in that sense Spurs you know that, that as big as that squad is it, it lacks kind of proper first 11 quality beyond maybe 14-15 players mm, that was a 1-0 thrashing they handed out to Sunderland wasn't it yeah. what are your impressions of Spurs and, and, and how they're going obviously they're still unbeaten yeah, I, I, I'm rather like McGuire. I do think that the squad is is the biggest issue, and I think balancing the the added pressure of of the Champions League. Look, you, you know, I think even Pochettino sort of admitted earlier in the season, he can rest players and rest and rotate for the Europa League, but when it comes to the Champions League, everybody wants to play, yeah. and that's the problem that he's got. All the first eleven want to play in the Premier League, and all the first eleven want to play in, in um, the Champions League as well. And it, 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 finding that balance, I think, is so difficult. I think it's really interesting that Moussa Dembele, I think, was, was one of the most underrated players of last season. I'd put him in the top three midfielders in the, in the league. I think he's absolutely fantastic, the way that he combines a kind of physical strength, you know, sort of a tenacity in midfield, but also driving forward. And I think when you lose players like that, you realise that either Tottenham have to change the way that they play... Or, or go in a different direction, really. And I think that, that their squad will be the biggest thing, really, for me. I think it's surprising 
that Spurs didn't invest more and bring in kind of three or four more players because I think their squad looks a little bit more fragile. I think Janssen obviously is good backup for Kane, but do they have other options, you know, in defence, in midfield? I'm not sure whether they've got enough options to kind of really keep it going on all fronts. I think it's going to be one or the other for Spurs, either the Champions League or the top four. The other team that's, you know, really making a good fist of it so far is, is Everton. You know, we talked about the Coman effect. He's obviously training them well, a lot of accent on fitness. How far can they go? Um, I think they possibly had a slightly forgiving opening few fixtures. Now, that, but that, that's not to take away, I mean, because they're fixtures they would have struggled in last season or in the last two years, maybe. So I wouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves yet. But I think they, they would be a good bet for, you know, top seven European places. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a well-balanced squad. They've got maybe one of the best forwards in the league. Um, so, yeah, but I, I, and I, they've got, like, well, the, the real test going to be supposed by December. And we could actually have a similar situation to uh, Southampton 2014-15. If you remember, they, they were top four right up, until, right up until December, actually. But partially because of a slightly easier start to the season, which Koeman is enjoying again this time. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I could see it along those lines, maybe. It drew a guy you know, playing mm. that sort of holding role in front of the back four. He looks to me to be one of the signings of the summer. It's it just incredible find. Absolutely incredible find. I mean, people tell me that his stats were amazing last season, even for Aston Villa, and playing in a relegated team. They, and they basically met a buyout clause for £7 million. And he looks an absolute snip. I think time and again, I think clubs would have looked at that and said, well, he looks a good player, but he's been in a relegated yeah, team, yeah. so what does that say about him? But I think the art of a scout and the art of really good recruitment mm. is being able to identify that player and the strength of the player, even in a weak team. Mm. And obviously it served, you know, kind of you know, Leicester well, and yeah. now obviously they've got sort of Steve Walsh. One of the most eye-catching stories, I thought, that, of last week was that basically uh, Leicester had targeted a guy basically before they signed Kante and they'd failed in getting him so went for Kante. <laughs> now can you imagine just the dynamics? Yeah. And he, he's so reminiscent in many ways, isn't he, of Kante in the way in the way that he sort of patrols midfield, he makes things happen. But he's incredible energy. And I just think that the way that he sets off with, with, with Gareth Barry, six hundred games, you know, should sort of kind of really get a Huge recognition, I think, you know. But they look a really good pair. And I think the way that Koeman has set up that team is really exciting. We'll have to finish looking at the bottom end of the table, Miguel. West Ham is thinking the place out defensively. Um, Stoke are in trouble. There's a few murmurs going on at Swansea. Are we already in the start of the season where we're thinking, are any managers under pressure here? Well, I mean, we could be. I mean, what's really worrying with uh, West Ham and Stoke is not just that they're uh, being beaten, but that in some games they're getting absolutely battered, particularly Stoke. Um, and they've both become so easy to play against. That, that, that's the biggest worry of all. I mean, it, it's some transformation from West Ham. They went from last season again to a side that was getting, regularly pulling off big wins. I mean, what was it? They beat West Ham, or sorry, they beat Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, United over the course of the season, and was Spurs as well. I mean, not Spurs, but. Um, but they've gone from that now to kind of just being pushed around by almost everyone they play. Uh, you, you you wonder, I mean, this obviously seems to be going beyond the stadium issue. And then with Stoke, again, it's is this one of the offsets of this kind of famous transformation that's been happening? They're obviously trying to play a kind of a more aesthetic brand of football. They've brought in so many more footballers. But now have they lost that old uh, that old bite they used to? Because, uh, you know, that, that, that defence has started to crumble. Well, they've conceded 50 goals 
this season, this year. Yeah. That's over 24 games, and that's eight more than any other Premier League team. That tells you everything, doesn't it? It, it does, and you know, there's you know, been a few suggestions that sort of Mark Hughes doesn't work so much on the defence, but he's more attack-minded manager. You look at Mark Hughes and his makeup. You would have thought actually that he would have been that that mm-hmm. well-organised thing. But look, I, I I tend to think if you look at Stoke's recent history, they've always started really badly, yeah. and they've come back and sort of kind of excelled. The one thing that worries me about this time is that they finished last season so badly, and they've gone into this season repeating what they did at the end of last season. Maybe giving them benefit of the doubt, Boney arrived late. I also I think that Mark Hughes is a really good manager. I think he does do it over a period of time, and I don't think Stoke will panic. But I do think it's a serious concern this time. One point on the board is just not good enough. I would actually more worry for Billich than you would think, just because just how, how different that situation is now. Mm. And, and because something needs to change at West Ham, given how difficult the season started in, in all aspects. Yeah, the stadium, I think, is a massive concern for, for West Ham. And like you've got to balance that. It's time and again, we've seen clubs move to stadiums and not really be able to embrace it, and the opponents come and raise their game. Mm. That seems to me what's happening. Mm. Well, October's a mad month for managers. So here's a scenario for you. Sparky leaves Stoke and is replaced by Tony Pulis. Stranger things have happened. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.